You know, I love Jonah chapter 3. In fact, it's one of my favorite examples of the difference between knowing about the Bible, maybe even knowing a lot about the Bible, and actually reading the Bible for itself. See, there's something in Jonah 3 that when I ask other people, even other Christ followers, almost all of us get this wrong. And what's kind of crazy about this is as I was preparing to share that with you today, I found more stuff in Jonah chapter 3 that I didn't know either. You know, it's that idea that God's word is living, it is active. And so I've got good news for you today. Are you ready? For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That is what the Bible calls the gospel. That's what the Bible calls good news. They are Jesus' own words, and it sounds a lot like that first song we sang today. And there's this sense in there that without Jesus, we would perish. That all of us have come short of God's standard, and that the cost of that is eternal separation from God. And yet, in those words, you hear God's love. You hear God's character. This is who God is, and this is God's heart for you and for me. So is it possible that this has always been God's heart? Even in the Old Testament? Even in, shall we say, Jonah 3? That is what we're going to take a deep dive into today. Not into a tempestuous sea, but into Jonah 3 to see how consistent God's character has been past, present, and future. Look at what it says as we jump into verse 1 and we find our friend having just exited from the great fish. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, already a sign of God's mercy, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, And preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. Now we're going to talk a lot about Nineveh today. But I don't want you to miss this about Jonah right here at the beginning of the chapter. Remember last week we talked about the idea that often Hebrew... That language is not rhyming sounds as much as it is rhyming ideas. We talked about chiasm last week. Well, it's happening right here. Verse 1 of Jonah chapter 3 is the exact same as chapter 1 verse 1, except for one difference. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now, if you remember in chapter 1, the word of the Lord comes to him. He does not arise. He goes down to Joppa, down to the boat, down into the bottom of the boat, lays down, is eventually cast down into the sea where he sinks down to the depths of the sea. But this time, God says, arise, go, preach. So Jonah arose. And one of the great mercies of God that we see here with Jonah is that despite all of the things that he's mixing up, all of the ways that he's kind of getting it wrong, Yet God continues to draw himself, draw people to himself through Jonah. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Now it says that Nineveh is an exceedingly great city. 
It was the capital of the empire at its time. And, and we saw this a little bit that to the people of Nineveh, it would seem like a normal day before Jonah shows up. And it tells us that it was three days in extent. Now that's a marker of the size of the city. And some people think that means three days across. Some people think that means three days around. Some people think that means it would take three days to hit each corner of the city delivering the message. Whatever it means, exactly, the idea here is that this is an important place. It is a massive place. It is a great city. And it's full of people that God cares about. So he sends them this messenger, Jonah. And finally, finally in this moment, Jonah is going to give them the message. Okay, so this is it. This is like my, one of my favorite trivia questions in the Bible. What message does Jonah deliver to Nineveh? Now, when I asked that, how many of you in your head gave some version of repent or else? That's usually how I would retell it, but, but check this out. Look at Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it? That's it. No call to repentance. No or else. No way out of it. Only destruction. The only thing he says to them it's eight simple words in the English, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In fact, it's only five words in the Hebrew. And the last word, overthrown, is a physical description of flipping something over. Like, I don't know if the Bible uses it this way, but you could use that as like flip over a pancake. Which, of course, for a pancake is not terribly dangerous. But you can imagine what happens to a city if God flips it over. And that is all Jonah tells them. Time is running out. The clock is winding down. 40 days and you're going to be flipped like a pancake. Now think about this moment. Because this is often the caricature we get of God in the Old Testament. That it's all judgment and it's all wrath. And so I want you to keep this in mind. Because if that's the whole message, there's something incredible that ends up being revealed here about the character of God even when that is the only message that Jonah gives. And notice how the people respond in verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest, that's our word gadol again, from the greatest to the least of them. The people of Nineveh believed God. What did they believe? Well, this is actually our first key word today. We're going to pick up on three key words in this passage, and the first one is believe. You see, the idea of belief here in Jonah 3 is that it means to agree with God that what he says is true. Because all they got was a message of destruction, but it carries with it a sense that the destruction is going to come because of their behavior, because of their wickedness, because of their evil, because of all of the ways 
that they have been living that do not line up with God's perfect standard. We talked about some of those the first week, how violent they were, how much murder, anger, evil, sexual sin, all of these things that were packed into their culture that to their culture was normal. And now, for the first time, it's like they're saying, God, you're right. They believed God. They agreed with God that what he says about right and wrong is what's true. Not what their culture says, not what they think. What God says about them, about their sin, but also about who they are as people. That to Jonah's mind, they're not even Jewish. They're pagans, they're Gentiles. And yet God says they are people I've created and I care about them. And it has this total New Testament sense to it that while they are still his enemies, God reaches out to them. In fact, this word, believe, right here in Jonah 3, it is actually the Hebrew word, amen. The root of that word in the Hebrew is aleph, mame, nun. So they read from right to left, aleph, mame, nun. And depending how the vowels show up, the way it's conjugated, here it would be pronounced aman, but it is the same word we hear, amen. That is not an English word. That is not a Latin word. It's not even a Greek word. It's a Hebrew word that has remained unchanged across multiple languages for thousands of years. And at its very root, it means that something is true. Something is faithful. It is unchanging. You can count on it. It is right and it is true. And so when it becomes a verb like this, and when it's addressed to God, it begins to take on this connotation that you believe or agree that something is true. Nineveh. Nineveh? Nineveh believed God. So here's another fun piece of trivia for you. You, you can use these at parties. I don't own these. This is just a free gift for you. What does Nineveh have in common with Abraham, the founder of the faith, right? The first one called a Hebrew. What does Nineveh have in common with Abraham? Genesis 15, 6 says, and he, Abraham, believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. It is the exact same word. Abraham amend God. Nineveh, amen, God. In fact, this gets carried through the New Testament in places like Romans 4, where Paul is driving home for us that we are not saved by our works. We cannot complete the law, right? We cannot balance out the things we've done wrong. We can't even really make up for them that we are saved by grace. And he gives Abraham himself as the example. He says, even Abraham, we are told, believed in the Lord. And it was given, it was accounted to him. It was written on his account, not that he had righteousness, but that he was given God's righteousness because he said, amen to God who is true and faithful. So here's a thought. If you and I want to say amen to God, if I, if I want to believe him, how do I believe that what God says about the world, 
about right and wrong, about me is true if I don't actually know what God says. <laughs> well, that sort of a self-answering question. But the reason I ask you that is because that is a huge part of why Horizon is here. You know, it's why we do these equipping services where we take a book like Jonah and we go line by line through the text. Because I, th- I think for a lot of us, and I've been there too, you know, we, we find these places in our lives where we're not sure we want to believe that. We're not sure God is who he says he is. We're not sure if there even is a God. And too often for us, maybe for our friends, even our neighbors, we make that decision without actually reading the Bible, without letting God speak for himself. Or we have decisions to make in our lives. Or we're trying to decide what's the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do. And we're trying to decide that without actually seeing Maybe I remember something my parents told me or I I heard something in church growing up and that's not bad. But if I'm going to base my life on this thing, I want to know what God says for himself. I want to get into this book. But maybe you feel like I do sometimes. Um, I open this book. I read something. Like my wife was working through Job the other day and we're talking about this. And it's like, man, Job's friends, they sure complain for an awful long time. What am I supposed to be getting out of this? I'm not sure I understand it. And so one of the other things that we want to do as a community, as as a group of friends here at Horizon, is help one another dig into this book. Help one another understand this text. Because ultimately, like I said, it's it's not just that we want to know about the Bible. Really, we're trying to get to know God through the Bible. If he really is who he says he is, if this really is his word to us, then I, I don't just want to read it so I can say, I read it. I want to understand it. I want to be able to apply it. I want to figure out what happens after I watch the message online. What happens after I read this chapter? How do I talk to God about it? How do I live it out? And so we've actually developed something, a a new tool that is, hopefully it's highly customizable for you, that we're calling The Pathway. And, And we've done things kind of like this before, sometimes in a booklet form and So we've taken all of those learnings and compacted it into essentially a written piece and a video piece that will go alongside the equipping message um, throughout the week so that you can read the passage, watch the message, and then have something just like this that includes discussion questions, you know, ways to explore how how this affects my life, ways to dig deeper, not just into this text, but the way that it connects with the entire Bible. Um, Even just some ideas for prayer and and things like that that are built into this pathway. So we'll have this written piece and then also a short midweek video that could be used to launch some discussion, could be used in your personal time with God, all connecting back to this equipping service that you're already watching, this passage that we're already reading to equip you not only to live it out, but maybe even to share it with others. So you'll hear more about that in a couple weeks because the one I just held up for you, this is kind of like a beta test that a number of our groups have been been doing kind of behind the scenes right now. And we're going to um, really launch this with our series in Psalms that comes right after Jonah. And I'm really excited for that because it could be something that you do with a group group of guys, group of gals digging into the word together. 
Uh, I know a couple moms who are just picking a night of the week and going through this equipping message together. A number of our gals groups have been doing this. You could just use it one-on-one with a friend over coffee. You could use this in your own personal time with God. However you find it helpful, that's really the point. You know, that it's a tool that helps us get into God's word to live out what he is teaching to us, to learn how to say amen to God. I believe you, you're right. In fact, the the one I just showed you, you know, one of the questions on there, that was actually from from Jonah 2 last week. Ask this question, do you find it difficult to believe that God still wants to show you mercy? Like here's Jonah in chapter three, just came out of a whale after this deep prayer in chapter two. And and one of my guys, um, one of the guys that's in a group with me, I asked him if I could just share this with you because he said he, he discovered in his life he does have a hard time believing that God still has mercy for him when he makes mistakes and that he'd gone through a season in life where you and I would call it a great fish. Some really, just in his own life and in his family life, some rough stuff happened. And through that, as he tried to look at scripture, as we were digging in in a group together with something not unlike this pathway, he discovered that he had dead spots, if we use the language that Chad shared last week, dead spots in his life related to anger and depression. And when he started praying like David prays, when he started praying like Jonah prays, bringing those dead spots to God, he discovered that he can recognize, allow, and receive God's mercy. And he's actually seen great healing in those two areas in his life as he looks back over the last year. Guys, that is what we're here for. That is why we dig into this book. That is a guy who knows his God better today from time in the word and time around other people. Essentially, when we say amen to God, it leads to action like that. In fact, that's exactly what happens as Jonah chapter three continues. In verses six and seven, we see how the people of Nineveh are responding. Remember at the beginning, the word of God came to Jonah and he arose Well, check this out. Verse six. Then, you know what? Let's go back to verse five. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. So essentially what is happening here right now is they don't want to just say, I believe you, God, you're probably right about this, and then go on living the way they were living. Like I was, I was thinking about a really cheesy example of this, but if I walk up to two of my kids fighting, And one of my kids is punching the other kid and I say, hey, stop doing that. That's wrong. You're hurting him. Like how weird would it be for that kid to say, you know, dad, you're right. Mm." (laughs) And punch him again. You'd say, you know, you're acting like you agree with me, but I'm not sure you do. (laughs) It's natural. The amen, the belief comes with an active response. And so for them, it describes sackcloth which is they put on clothes that are really itchy on purpose. 
like a little self-affliction as I just spend this time almost in mourning for what I realize I've done against the eternal holy God. It says that they were taking a fast from food and water, even going so far as to sit in ashes. All of this is symbolic of the moment they realize, God, you're right. What we have been doing is wrong. Now as the passage continues, there's a moment in verse 8 that is going to bring us our next key word. And I don't want you to miss this. This is still the king of Nineveh speaking. So if they're the bad people, he's the king of like the worst people on earth right now. And he says, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Let everyone turn from his evil. Active. In fact, that word turn, you may have heard this before, it's the Hebrew word shuv. And shuv is often translated repent. But it's actually a physical word. So you could say the cows were walking west, but they shuved. Now the cows are walking east. And that's why the Bible uses this kind of language. Because the idea when it translates that word repent, that idea to turn, when the king of Nineveh says turn from your evil, the idea is that it is both what you turn from and who you turn to. Did you notice in this verse, the king doesn't say stop your evil and let's do some good works. Let's try to make up for this. Let's try harder. In this moment, All they can do is what they turn from and who they turn to. To turn from being in charge of my own life. To turn from coming up with my own standards. To turn from whatever it is that has me off track, out of alignment with God. But not just to to try to turn to better behavior, behavior and hope this works out better. It's to actually turn to God. To cry out, he says, to God as we turn from evil. Now that is a key idea throughout the whole of scripture. So when you catch that word turn, when you catch that word repent, I mean, can you imagine what's happening here? Like I know this history is a long way back, but but this is the thing that Jonah was afraid of. He knew these people were evil. And we saw in the first week, we described the way that they would torture their enemies. And maybe we don't do that physically, but do we do it with our words? Do we do it in our thoughts? The kind of murder, the kind of wickedness, the kind of violence the king just described, it would include tearing unborn children from the wombs of women. It it would include just all kinds of sexual sin. You know, and, and imagine an entire city saying, everybody Stop. God's right. This is wrong. There's probably more of Nineveh in the world around us than we realize. Where culture defines for us what is right and wrong, but we need to turn to God. And as you think about that, I, I wonder, you know, we imagine what it's like for a whole city to repent. 
And I know that's like a big religious word, but when you realize this idea of turning from something and to God, it also becomes really practical. So instead of just imagining a whole city, could you imagine one person? You see, what I realize as I read this, if maybe it's true that, that I don't read the book of Jonah as much as it reads me, Nineveh is not out there. Nineveh is not those people. Nineveh's in here. It's me. I am Nineveh. I need mercy. I need compassion. I need forgiveness. I need to believe. I need to say amen to God and I need to repent. You know, and in many ways, that first repentance is that first time that you turn to God. That first time that I say, I'm, I'm done trying to live my own life. I'm done trying to be in charge of me. I need to give my life to God to realize, like Nineveh, there are things that I've done. And whether I rank them with Nineveh or not, there, there are things that all of us have done that fall short of God's standard that lead to what John 3.16 talked about, that I'm going to perish. And yet that there is a forgiver. And I turn my life over to Jesus. I change my direction. I change my mind about Jesus. And instead of saying, I'm not so sure about him, for the first time I say, I believe that he's my forgiver. That's the first repentance. But you know, there's something for Jonah here too. And, and even for you who call yourself a Christ follower. Because as a Christ follower, repentance becomes an ongoing part of our growth. Now, even in this last year, I remember thinking that one of the toughest lessons I learned going through the pandemic and quarantines and all these things is I did not realize how, let's just put it, how angry I get when I'm not in control of my own schedule. And as I tried to process that with God and I'm crying out to him and I'm, let's say I'm complaining to him, it was, I realized it was more than just my schedule. There are things in the way that I think, the way that I act, and the way that I speak to people around me that are controlling. And so rather than God saying, but hey, we all make mistakes, God started to really dig into me. And, he, and he's still working on me. That I actually, I can remember the spot and the moment when I said, God, I repent of my controlling attitude. I know I'm going to need to learn new habits. I know there's going to be a lot of growth, but I want to turn away from that and to you. Would you help me? And maybe you've had those times in your life too when you, you know that you have trusted Christ as forgiveness and you find one of those dead spots to turn from anger, to turn from pornography, to turn from unkind words and gossip, to turn from, from lies, from self-hatred, self-doubt. You know, the moments where we think, I'm not sure I can receive God's mercy. I'm not sure I'm really forgiven. And you have to turn back to God who says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. When you think you're not good enough, he says you are worth dying for. When you think you can't change, he says, I can give victory. That apart from me, you can do nothing, but I've chosen you to bear good fruit. That when you are weak, he says, I am strong. You see, that is what we find when we repent is a God of mercy, a God of compassion. In fact, 
One of God's other prophets puts it this way in Isaiah 55, verse 7. I I love this, one of my favorite verses. You'll see here, same word, shuv, when we turn to the Lord. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and watch what happens. And he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Like, I can own. I can bring this stuff out of the dark into the light. I can own. There's stuff in me that is wicked and unrighteous. And when I turn to God... Not only does he show mercy, not only does he show pardon, I love that phrase, abundant pardon. The idea is overflowing pardon, even more pardon than you actually need is given to you when you turn to the Lord. That is what Nineveh was hoping for. Check this out in Jonah 3.9, the next verse, the king is still speaking, he says, Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Isn't that an amazing statement? Who can tell? Who who knows? You just read Isaiah 55, 7. You know. You can tell what God would do. You realize in this moment, Nineveh doesn't even know God very well. They don't have complete understanding of all the questions they could ask. They don't have complete understanding of all the deep theology. Right now, all they know is, Amen. God's right. And they, I mean, Jonah knows, right? It's what he's been afraid of. But they're still saying, who even knows? They actually use the word shuv again. Maybe God will shuv. But shuv is not something God needs to do because it's usually connected to a mistake. Notice it says, who can tell if God will turn and relent? It's a different word. In the Hebrew, it means show mercy, have compassion. It's not the idea of, oh, I realize I shouldn't have done this. Sorry, guys, I'll back off. It's the idea that the destruction he declared is exactly what they deserve. But his purpose has always been for them to respond to him, to turn to him. And if they do, well, that's what I wanted, God would say. Then we don't need the destruction. Then he relents. They say maybe he'll relent so that we may not perish but have everlasting life. You see how much Jonah 3 carries through to John 3. This is the compassion, the mercy, the relenting of God. And look at how God responds in verse 10. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, And he did not do it. This is who God is. This is the love of God. This is God's heart for you. You know what Nineveh has done. Jonah knows what Nineveh has done. You know what you've done. I know what I've done. This is the moment where they're afraid that maybe maybe we do all this and who knows, maybe God will relent. And you would expect... If God was human like you or me, honestly, if this was me, I'm growing, I'm learning, he's teaching me, but I'm probably like, not after what you did. Or, well, I'm still going to flip over half the city because, you know, you deserve it. Look at the heart of God. They repent. God relents. Does not bring the destruction. 
to see that God loved even Nineveh and was drawing them to himself. That is shocking to me. Because you remember Jonah's message? It wasn't repent and God will relent. It was 40 days and you'll be destroyed. That's it. And yet this is the character of God. That even when the message is only of destruction, the nature of God and the character of God is that it is always included that mercy is still available until the 40 days are up, right? Like if you're still here, whatever you're thinking about as you hear me speak today, if you're still here, it's not too late. And yet, none of us knows our time on earth. I don't know when my 40 days is over. I don't know when it's over for my friend or my family member or my neighbor. It's one of the reasons that I think we're challenged by this not to wait, but to turn to God today. Not to wait, but to reach out to my friends and neighbors today. And and I don't have to put on a sandwich board and stand on the corner of their yard and yell. But how am I reaching out to them with the same compassion that God reached out to me? Because this moment, as shocking as it seems, God describes exactly that moment throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, that he is a God who relents so that we can experience God's mercy and God's grace. And I chose that word experience because the idea is that we experience it and we share it. In fact, he wrote in Jeremiah 18, another one of his prophets, these very words. If at any moment, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck it up, to pull it down and to destroy it, If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. Nineveh is proof of Jeremiah 18. So am I. You could be too. In fact, God goes on to say, and if I've told you blessing and you don't obey, I'll pull back the blessing But you realize now the cycle here is that even that, like Jonah being in the fish, like the warning given to Nineveh is because God's heart is that we hear the warning and turn back to him. And he's just waiting to relent, to show compassion and to show mercy. This is what the Bible calls the good news. This is why Jesus went to the cross. Because God doesn't say, hey, we all make mistakes. I know you've been murdering people. I know you've been killing babies. I know you've been lying. I know you've been stealing Nineveh. Hey, hey, we all make mistakes. That doesn't sound like a good God, does it? In fact, God loves us too much to leave us in our sin. And he loves us too much not to deal with our sin. Which is why Jesus Christ came in the flesh to die on the cross, to take the punishment, to take the flipped pancake, to take the overthrowing, to take the destruction on himself, that the penalty for our sins might be paid for in him. The New Testament describes that every sin that was ever forgiven, Old Testament new and on into our own present and future, was forgiven not by those sacrifices, but on the basis of his blood shed for us. That Jesus died and rose again so that we could experience the resurrection that Chad talked about last week. So that we could experience the forgiveness that Nineveh experiences because God so loved the world 
that he gave us his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. In fact, in that passage, in John 3.16, as Jesus has that conversation, multiple times in the conversation, you'll see it translated, most assuredly, I say to you. Three times he says twice, it's actually, amen, amen, I say to you. The book of Revelation even refers to Jesus as the amen. He is the truth. And Jesus speaks to us in his own words in Mark chapter 1, repent and believe. Mark 1 verses 14 and 15 when he says the kingdom is here, he invites us, he invites you to repent and believe. And so I'm going to let that be our key takeaway today. You know, maybe for you it's repenting for the first time. That first turn from being in charge of my own life to recognizing my need for a forgiver and asking Jesus to be that forgiver. And you know, maybe there's something in your life that you feel like it's, it's out of alignment with God and you just want to take today to say, God, I recognize I've been going the wrong direction. Amen. You're right. I believe you about the forgiveness available, the mercy available, that this is not of you. And turn to the Lord. Because in our three key words, two of them are us. Believe and repent. But then there's one that only God can do. Relent. Show us his compassion and his grace. So let's pray as we close. And maybe you even just want to use these words. God, I believe you. I believe you that I need forgiveness that I need your mercy. I repent of the ways I've lived for myself instead of for you. Thank you that you are a God who relents. Thank you for your forgiveness through Jesus. Help me live today in light of your grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, amen.